Let's get everybody back in the sanctuary so we can begin. Just waiting for that light to stop flashing and turn red. There we go. So today, we are talking about family. Actually, this entire month, we've been talking about family. Last week, we talked about how we should interact as a family, according to God. And then before that, the week before, we talked about what are the parts of a family. We've been working on a larger narrative. Um, It's not on the screen, but we've been working on a larger narrative for the last three years. It's part of a five-year plan where we are discussing what is beautiful before God. Because there are certain things that, you know, we can do, but that doesn't mean we do them well. That doesn't mean that when we do them, they're pleasing to God. And then there are some things which we are told are pleasing to God that are downright ugly to God. So one of the topics for this year, this year we're discussing in that five-year plan, we're discussing being vulnerable, we're discussing being accountable and invested in each other. And so for this month, we're discussing family and what it looks like to have a beautiful family, a family before God that is accountable, that is invested. So like I said, we talked about the parts of the family because we're deconstructing what family looks like because we're told so many different things about what a family is these days. And we're talking about how we should interact as a family. So I'm going to try to keep everybody up to date on what we're talking about because there's a lot of groundwork in the first two weeks of the month. If you're interested in those things, you can just check out our Facebook page. Um, We also have a podcast. You can go to vigilance.blog or abfpdx.org, and you can find our podcast, and you can see our sermons, or you can just check out our Facebook page, and you can watch our sermons online. You can also watch them live as they're happening, too. If you can't be here, you want to see the end of uh, family next week. But in any case, today we are talking about what the purpose of a family is. Um, what is the characteristics of a godly family? What should a godly family look like? Next week we'll be talking about how do we attain having a godly family. So today we're talking about what the characteristics of a godly family is. And to do that, we need to talk about what the purpose of a family is. And to do that, we're going to start with science. So science has argued multiple things about what a family is, mostly based on what we call Darwinian evolution. Uh, Science argues that the evolutionary process of a family is to create safety and promote a system of benefit through social contract. Uh, Originally, what people believed was that people came together essentially to scratch each other's backs. That's how family was formed. Um, To scratch each other's backs and to be safe. Modern ideas for the family are, like I said, derived from Darwinian uh, evolution, the theory of evolution, which speaks of survival, being the key reason why humans survive together, so that they can, uh, why they come together, so that they can survive together. Uh, I kind of went over this the last couple weeks, so I'm going to breeze through it really quickly. In 1877, there was a guy named Lewis Morgan who published a paper on the evolution of savagery to barbarism, and then eventually to civilization, using Darwinian's uh, Darwinian evolution as his basics. Frederick Engels, in 1884, expanded this theory into economics and theorized that primitive communities formed into classes to create families out of these classes. And that's how you started to have poor families and rich families. Again, from Darwin's theory of evolution. And then you had a guy named Karl Marx. Some of you have probably heard of Karl Marx. I suppose some of you you haven't. Um, But Karl Marx was influenced in this Uh, was influenced by Darwinian evolution and the theories of how families were formed. And those theories were influential in building, essentially, communism. In the 1980s, structural functionalism gained acceptance. It further solidified the idea that the purpose of family was for solidarity and for safety. So science, quote unquote, humanistic uh, secular science, believes that family was formed out of a need for safety and benefit through social contract theory. There's different types of family through through history. Uh, From 1450 to 1630, there was something called the open lineage family-dominated family, which is essentially the clansmen that you had. 
you were family if you were in the same clans. In 1550 through 1700, there was something called the Restricted Patriarchal Nuclear Family. This is when, uh, because you had clansmen, you gained land, and then because you gained land, the people that were on that land were now considered family. And so, basically, there was a biological connection of what is family. It no longer had to do with clansmen. And then in 1640 to 1800, that's when we have the closed domesticated nuclear family. So roles in the family declined because relative safety had been achieved. Where relative safety had been achieved, because remember I said the purpose in science for us having families is that we can be safe. So now that relative safety had been achieved because people had consolidated their land, and there were different classes, and the rich could be rich, and the poor were poor, and everybody had their own ideas and place in the world, now we could focus on other things. We weren't so focused on whether our relationships would get us the right type of um, money or land. We were now focused on things like who we liked. And so this is about the time period where you see things like Romeo and Juliet being written. So why do we have families in today's world? What is the purpose of family in a time of relative ease and wealth? Today is a time period where there's relative ease and wealth. What does the world say about that? Well, the world has, honestly, no good answer for this. It has really no good answer. In an evolutionary, humanistic framework, family is really nothing more than a genetic bank for material so that you can continue the line that you have. It's a gang, essentially, to protect you from other gangs. It means nothing more than the circumstances that created it, and when those circumstances no longer present themselves, then families will decline. And you may say that that doesn't really make sense, but I would just point you to statistics. Statistics point out that the nuclear family is on decline. That is a well-established fact. If you look at Pew Research, the work family living arrangements of children between 1960 and 2012, between the ages of 0 to 14, you will find that 63% had married parents where the father was only employed. Now it's 22%. That was in 2012. You will find that 11% uh, have a single father, whereas before it was less than 1% in the 1960s you will find that you had 11% with a never-married mother now, before it was less than 1%. And the list goes on and on and on. There's been a drastic change since even the last 50 to 75 years of what family looks like in Western Americanized culture. Why is that? Because the world is safe. And if it's a socialistic humanistic system that developed the concept for family, the world is safe. You don't need family anymore. Why do you need a gang to protect you, to give you these rules and structures, if you can just be with whoever you want to, because it's safe? Yet, you would say, okay, well, that's great, because now people are free to develop the types of families they want to. And certainly, they can. And certainly, this is something that's being pushed. For instance, I'll give you two examples. ABC Family, this is a family network um, owned by Disney, right? It used to be a network called ABC Family. Now it is no longer called ABC Family. It's called Freeform. Why do you think it's called Freeform? Because there's no such thing as a specific family anymore. Here's another one. There is a trailer out right now called Ideal Home, starring Paul Rudd, and some other guy. <laughs> and it is about a homosexual couple that th their child like, is coming, to, well, somebody's grandchild, I think, is coming to live with this, with this homosexual couple, right? And as this trailer is going on, this is mainstream, okay? As this trailer's going on, we're flashed with uh, words. And the words are saying things like, um, family can be what you want it to be, so on and so forth. This, it's not new. The concept of redefining family is not new. This is a big deal. Because the idea, the mindset is that family is not something that is inspired. It is something that you make. 
And why shouldn't it be when we come from this evolutionary, humanistic standpoint where we believe that we are nothing more than space dust, right? All we are are parts that float, and occasionally we bump into each other. And so why do we put so much emphasis on whether these parts uh, want to call that marriage? Why do we put so much emphasis on how these parts go together? Instead, we should be free to make it however we want to. That makes sense if there's no, uh, if there's no innate value to human beings, if there's no innate value to a system that was created for us. The problem is, is that we don't live that way. That's the problem. We think that way. We like to have our freedoms. We like to think that everything is Legos and that we can make it however we want it to. But that's not how we live. It's a problem because families, in this view, are ultimately unnecessary, right? In the, in the socialistic, humanistic, evolutionary theology, essentially, view, families are ultimately unnecessary. But at the same time, they're also the backbone of a society. We need families. That's where children learn how to be functional members of society. So without family to teach things like social contract, that's the idea that I scratch your back and you scratch mine until you scratch mine too hard and then I get rid of you. That's social contract. And that's what America is based on, for instance, social contract theory. Um, we're left to impose a case system on weaker-willed people. Let me read that again for you. In this view, families are ultimately unnecessary while at the same time being the backbone of a society that we all need. Without family to teach things like social contract, we are left to impose a caste system on weaker-willed people. In other words, we trample people because we don't have to be nice to them. You guys ever heard of the Eloy and the Morlocks? The Time Machine, H.G. Wells. So H.G. Wells wrote about this, this sort of case system that was more than, than a social case system. It had actually developed into the physical traits of people where they literally became different species. So the Eloy, they were sort of the, the, the picture of like the, um, now I'm thinking of classic Star Trek here, but the Eloy were the picture of the innocent people. They, they were sort of like fairies. And then you had the Morlocks. And the Morlocks would eat the Eloi. But the reason why the Morlocks would, and the Morlocks lived underground, the reason why the Morlocks would eat the Eloi is because at some point, the Eloi actually uh, had made the Morlocks into their slaves. This is long forgotten. And they had uh, imposed a system on them where the Morlocks were now uh, underground, working all the time so that the Eloi could have their pleasure. Have we seen this in families before? Look at how like systems, look at, look, look at how like monarchies are set up, for instance, where you have certain families that are considered better than other families. This is how it used to be. This is how it is if you ever watch Game of Thrones, for instance. This is how it is, like certain families, the, the, the Targaryens, or I'm not gonna go through the Game of Thrones names, but <coughs> this is how it is. We also see this in religious terms, even, even nowadays, besides Game of Thrones. Has anybody watched The Handmaid's Tale? So The Handmaid's Tale is a show, it's on Hulu, it's about a dystopian future um, with religious terms, but essentially they take the family model and they turn it into a, a use for power. Uh, the Handmaid's Tale is where a class system has developed that suppresses the relational family in favor of a class-based, totalitarian, familial system that is full of corruption and debauchery. In other words, You've got one type of family over here that like imposes its will on a weaker-willed family, and then you've got another type of family over here that like has things like love and things like that, but it's not in power. It's not in control. Mankind actually wants there to be a family. When we talk about this humanistic way of looking at things. Mankind doesn't want there to be a family, right? When we talk about this humanistic way of looking at things, we say there's no such thing as a family. We can define family as we want to. 
And yet, mankind wants there to be a family. Mankind values the concept of family. Though there is a fundamental religious phobia running through, like, for instance, The Handmaid's Tale or, or even um, Game of Thrones or a show like that, that religious phobia presents that, that sort of sterility about family, like when you have a, a family that's controlling other families. That presents that as negative. It always presents family as negative when that family lacks things like love. Why do you suppose that is? Why do you suppose that in a show or a movie for non-believers, we value things like love in our families? In this day and age, marriage is something that's often fought for. Family is often fought for as a straight-up human right by many groups, many of which do not believe at all in any innate morality. They don't believe in any transcendent value of human beings. What I mean by transcendent value is that a human being has value regardless of what they do, regardless of who they are. They have a value that's been given to them because some other being like God has placed that value on them. Science doesn't teach that. Science teaches that we are nothing more than space dust, that we are material plus time plus chance. That's it. And so there is no innate value to who we are. And yet, we have all these groups that don't believe in the innate value of humanity, don't believe in any sort of transcendent reality, fighting for the right to have a family, fighting for the right to have marriage, on what basis, on what grounds do they do that? They wish to have the institution of marriage and family be relationally significant. They wish to have the institution of marriage and family be morally holy, as if anything could be these things when we are nothing more than insignificant parts. Why? Why do they wish these things? It would... Yeah, I'm not going to say that. Um, <clears throat> instead, we view marriage as more than parts coming together. They don't. They don't in their minds, but in their relationships, that's what they want. For some reason, people want more than parts coming together, even though in their minds they hold that that's not who we are. Instead, they view marriage as more than parts coming together. They view themselves as significant, and it's on this basis, their own significance, that when they come together and commit to each other, their marriages, their families, they somehow mean something. Because we can say, yes, we are just time plus chance plus space mixed with matter, but at the, at the end of the day, no one actually believes that. No one actually lives like that. No one believes that everything is really time plus chance, plus space. There's a reason why we do laundry, right? Because we don't think that tomorrow there isn't some place we need to go to where we're not going to need clean clothes. We actually believe that tomorrow is connected to today, right? There's a reason why we eat certain foods. Why? Because we think that they're going to taste the same way tomorrow, that they're going to have the same nutritional value tomorrow. Well, some of us don't think about nutritional value, but... <laughs> but that they're going to be the same tomorrow. Nobody lives like that. So somebody can say, I don't believe in your innate value as a human being because there's no God and there's nothing else, but yet I believe that we need to come together and create this holy union and that we have a right as human beings to have a family, that we have a right as human beings to have these relationships. Why? Why do they believe that? Where do we get that from? Well, I'll tell you where we got it from. We got it from God. That's where we got that idea from. See, whereas evolutionary theory doesn't provide us an answer for why we feel that we are significant, God does. Whereas evolutionary theory doesn't provide us an answer for why we should want to relate to each other, for why we should care if the other person is hurt or if the other person has a better life. God does. 
The Bible gives the answer to these questions. We are made in God's image, is what it says. And because we are made in the image of God, therefore we reflect his nature. And he calls all relationships for a purpose, to reflect his nature. So what is that purpose, you might ask? Well, the purpose is to demonstrate his artistry, because that's who God is. God is an artist. That's why we think that our marriages actually mean something, even when we say that we don't with our minds, even when we say, no, it doesn't actually mean something, but then we want people to applaud it, we want people to look at it, we want people to feel something. Because we are created to think that these things actually mean something. We are created to connect to them. We are created to look at marriage and say, this is beautiful. We are created to want it, even though we say, with another part of our mind, that's not real, it's just a man-made institution, doesn't really have any significance. That's not true. It is something that is very significant before God. So, God has a way in which those relationships can demonstrate this best. And the way that he does that is he starts teaching us how to do this when he gives mankind what we call the cultural mandate. So in the scriptures, in Genesis 1, 28, we find the cultural mandate, and it's very simple. It goes like this. Be fruitful and multiply. That's it. That's the cultural mandate. Be fruitful and multiply. Now, who was the cultural mandate given to? The cultural mandate was given to the first family. In other words, just like science tells us, or at least tries to tell us, has a theory about how society developed and says that the family is at the start of culture and society, hey, they got that right. Family is at the culture and start of society. The Bible says that too, and it says that God sent Adam and Eve out into the world and gave them this this proclamation, this identity, that they were to be fruitful and multiply, and that is the start of society. The first family was called to start society by being fruitful and multiplying, so this is twofold. The first is to be productive in God's creation. That's what being fruitful is, to be productive in God's creation, and that means exploring the creation. That means cultivating the creation. That means painting on God's blank canvas of creation. Have you ever thought to yourself that my responsibility in my family is to explore God's creation? It's kind of an interesting concept, right? Usually we don't even think about the purpose of our family except to provide what? Safety and security. The second is to multiply. This means that humanity was to spread outward and reproduce itself. Eventually, fully dominating the whole sphere of God's creation. So they are to be productive, and they are to reproduce. So on a biological level, a physical level, all families are therefore supposed to be cultivators of God's creation and each other. And this responsibility is what eventually creates a society. This is the physical motion of every family in creation. It doesn't matter where you come from, what culture you come from. This is what God says is the purpose of a family. All the laws in scripture that we have about how we're supposed to act around each other and help foster each other in a relationship with God, as I pointed out last week, all of those protect the family. Now, is this just the responsibility of the man and, and the wife? Well, it is the responsibility of the husband and wife to be models of this for future generations. But it doesn't end there. For instance, we see in Genesis, chapter 12, 4 through 5, chapter 17, 12 through 13, and a bunch of other places, that Abraham's entire household was called. So when God extended this purpose, he didn't just say, hey, you and you, he said, hey, you, cumulatively, you are all a part of this purpose, this process. Abraham's entire household was called. In Acts 16, 11 through 15, actually through like uh, verse 33, we see that an entire family was called to become Christian. In 1 Corinthians 7, 
there's talk of, of um, a woman who's married to a non-Christian. And there is the concept that we are supposed to extend salvation outward to that non-Christian. See, when God calls a family for a purpose, he calls the entire family. And that isn't just even the biological family. When God called Abraham to a purpose, that included all of his servants. That included everybody. Several times in Scripture, we see that a whole family is called to salvation and to join in having faith in God. And whether that family fully submits and participates is up to each member, yes, but the purpose and promises of God are always extended to the whole family. And this is an extension of the whole um, <clears throat> crib. Crib, okay. So we have a, like a proprietary form of talking about this within our church. It's called crib theory. And basically it says that God's version of a family is larger than the biological family or the nuclear family. It includes the covenantal community, which is like churches. It includes the infinite community, which is God himself. It includes the relational community and then the biological community. All of those connected through the father to God himself. That is the crib, covenantal, relational, infinite, and biological. And when God calls a family, he's talking to the whole community, not just the biological, but everyone. But, of course, it always starts with the biological. This is something that's really important. It always starts with the biological. So what other characteristics are in a godly family? Besides having a role to model God's infinite nature, are there any other things that define a godly family? Well, yes. A godly family has clear methods, identity, and role. When we look at the scriptures, when we look at, for instance, uh, Revelate, well, when we look at John 13, 34 through 35, it says this. It says, a new commandment I give to you that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. You'll notice that this command is given to all Christians. And if you recall, the society, any society, is based on the family. So therefore, the prime command, not just to Christians, but to family, is to do what? Love one another. That's how we're defined. That's how we should define our method of acting as Christians. The defining characteristic for your family should be that you love one another. And that word love is agape in the Greek. It means unconditionally. That you should have an unconditional love for each other. Family members are given ways to outwork their spirituality in their individual roles. They are freed in Christ to be loving to each other. How many of you can say that your families are unconditionally loving to each other? It's a hard one, right? But that's what's to define us first off. A godly family loves each other. A godly family also has men who are empowered to be men. Did you know that loving your wife, I said that it developed, they, they, they traced it socially to the, uh, between 1660 and 1800, um, the concept of loving, <laughs> of having love in a relationship. They traced it to then. Did you know that loving your wife is a radically biblical concept? It's not normal to love your wife at the time that the Bible was written. Um, let me read you an excerpt here from a guy named William Barclay. He describes both the Jewish and Greek ancient context in reference to women in, in uh, Colossians. This is what he says. Under Jewish law, a woman was a thing. The possession of her husband, just as much as his house or his flocks or his material goods. She had no legal rights, whatever. For instance, under Jewish law, a husband could divorce his wife for any cause, while a wife had no rights at all in the initiation of divorce. And the only grounds on which a divorce might be awarded her were if her husband developed leprosy. 
if he gave up his beliefs or he sexually assaulted a virgin, specifically a virgin. In Greek society, a respectable woman lived a life of entire seclusion. She never appeared on the streets alone, not even to go shopping. She lived in the woman's apartments and did not join the men of the household even for meals. Complete servitude and chastity were demanded for her, but her husband could go out as much as he chose and could enter into as many relationships outside marriage as he liked without incurring any social criticism. Under both the Jewish and the Greek laws and custom, all the privileges belong to the husband and all the duties to the wife. And yet, Ephesians chapter 5, verse 5 to 28, written to people who were Jewish, living in a Hellenistic or a Greek society, says this. Husbands, love your wives. Just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word, and to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. In this same way, husbands ought to love their wives as their own body. He who loves his wife loves himself. See, we live in this Western Americanized culture where we have these views of marriage and relationship, and we're sort of used to it, right? We're like, ah, oh, this is how it should be. Hey, the, the Bible got it right. Do you understand that when the Bible is talking, at the time that it was talking, everybody else was saying something completely different? Even in the culture? This is radical. And let me tell you something. Today, this is radical again. Men don't have to be men anymore. Here, According to scripture, there are certain roles. There are certain ideas and identities and methods that a man is required to follow through with. And we see that a godly family has people being who they are supposed to be before God. Men are supposed to be men as defined by Christ. Somebody who loves his wife. Again, seems like a small statement, like a no-dust statement. Love your wife. That is not a small statement to make. Not at the time it was made. Women are to be women. Children are to be children. Leaders are to be leaders. Everything has its proper place. Because our God is a God of order, he is not a God of chaos. This concept of freedom... This concept of freedom without responsibility. It's killing our families. Because when we look at society, which it is taking apart, our families are the smallest microcosm. They are the beginning point of all society. In a godly family, people are self-aware. In a godly family, People are free to fully blossom into who God made them to be. They are radically committed to be their whole selves rather than simply allowing a fraction of their personalities or a fraction of their desires to turn them into slaves. In a godly family, we define ourselves by God. We do not define ourselves by our lusts. People are now, in a godly family, the complete picture as all parts are given meaning under Christ. A godly family has godly teaching. Exodus 20, that's the Ten Commandments for those of you who don't know. Exodus 20 has two interesting commandments in it, the fifth and the seventh commandment. The fifth commandment says, honor your father and mother. The seventh commandment says, do not commit adultery. Don't you think it's interesting that in the societal laws that God gives the Jewish people, he places 
two really important commands, again, that went against the grain of society, that would protect the sanctity of the family. Matthew 19 says God hates divorce. Deuteronomy 6 says, listen, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord alone, and you must love the God, you must love your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your strength. You must commit yourselves wholeheartedly to these commands as I am giving you today. Now listen to this. Repeat them again and again to your children. Talk about them when you are at home and when you are on the road and when you are going to bed and when you are getting up. Tie them to your hands. Wear them on your forehead as reminders. Write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. This is repeated again in Deuteronomy chapter 11. Deuteronomy is a book that was written when Moses was about to die. And he wanted to make sure that the holiness of the Jewish people continued. And so, in order to make sure that the holiness of the Jewish people continued, the society of Jews, what does he target? He targets the family. And he says, within your families, you are to constantly be teaching these commands. Yet I ask you, how many godly families do you know where every day, just every day, let's not talk about every moment, waking, sleeping, you know, walking on the road. Let's talk about every day, once a day. How many godly families do you know that once a day have a meaningful conversation about God as a family? Is that who you are as a family? Because according to this, it should be. This is what a godly family is. Exodus 20 and 7. Pretty fifth and seventh command. Pretty interesting. God's family has rules. God's family has teaching. It's a family that thinks. It's a family that reasons together. It's a family where discipline doesn't mean punishment, but means commitment to a strong mind. How many times have you heard somebody say, I'm not interested in teaching my child because I want them to develop their own path? A godly family says, I will teach my child. My child will have a strong mind. And the scripture says that those who commit to that, when that child grows up, it will not stray. But most families don't hold that promise. But a godly family does. A godly family is well taken care of. It takes care of each other. This even goes to siblings. Genesis 4.9 says, Am I my brother's keeper? You know what happens next in that story? Well, God doesn't kill Cain, but he certainly makes him enemy number one. Because guess what? This is the thing that usually goes unnoticed about this story. When Cain says about Abel, who he killed, am I my brother's keeper to God? Guess what? Yes. You are your brother's keeper. Think about that. Think about how many times you have said about your sibling, not my problem. I'm not going to deal with that. That's not my problem. I'm not their keeper. Not according to God. Parents, Ephesians and Colossians, they do say things like, hey, we need to respect the, the family structure. Parents don't, or children, obey your parents. Make sure that you obey your parents. But they also says... Fathers, do not exasperate your children. A godly family is well taken care of. Parents, believe it or not, are supposed to care. Do you know what exasperate means? Exasperate means to drive somebody to the point where they are emotionally unsound. That's what it means. When you are hounding your child to the point where your child has an emotional break, and they can't function anymore. 
according to Scripture, as a parent, you are forbidden from doing that. Now, are your children supposed to honor you? Are they supposed to respect you? Yes. But you see, there's a balance to maintain. Needs are provided for. 1 Timothy 5.8 goes so far as to say this. But if anyone does not provide for his family, which means relatives here, so it's everybody in the biological community, okay? If, every, if anyone does not provide for his relatives, and especially for members of his household, he has denied his faith and is worse than an unbeliever. Think about that. Think about how many families you know that are Christian, and then they have parts of their family that aren't Christian, and they say, well, they're not Christian, so I'm not going to associate with them. As a pastor, I've come across that a lot. They're not Christian, so I don't care. It'll get figured out. Not my problem. I'm not my brother's keeper. God's family treats the members of the family, biological or otherwise, with utmost care. In God's family, no member falls through the cracks. In God's family, each unique voice is to be heard and grown into something that can be productive for God. God's family is larger than the biological family. Matthew 12, 46 through 50 says, And who is my mother and my father? You know who says that? Jesus. He says that when they try to box him into his biological family. See, the purpose of the bio family is to join the larger whole family in service to the will of God. So that means all of the crib, the covenantal, the relational. It's not to be locked into the biological family and that is it. It is not the bio family versus the world. How many of you have heard of that mentality? It's the bio family versus the world. Not according to God. In fact, when they tried to box Jesus in, he made that claim. Who is my mother and father? You know who Jesus viewed his father to be, right? God. Not Joseph. God. John 1, 12-13 says, But to them he gave them the right to be called children of God. You know what we're talking about here? We're talking about the concept of adoption. People who believe in Christ get the right to be adopted into a relationship with God. In other words, it's not about just being Jews anymore, according to what this passage is saying. It's about the faith that you have. In other words, family isn't about biology. Family is more than biology. It's not that family is not worth anything, biological family. It's that family, biological family, is part of a larger whole that needs to be observed. And when any part of that larger whole secludes itself and says that it alone is what God intended, that is a problem. To the point where Jesus goes so far as to say, who are you saying is my mother? Who are you saying is my father again? Romans 8.15 speaks about adoption also. Galatians 3.26-29 says that there is neither Jew nor Greek nor slave nor free nor male nor female. None of these distinctions matter when you're looking at the whole picture of what God views as the family, the entire crib. A godly family is outward thinking. It only begins with the nuclear biological family. It only begins with that community, but it draws others in and is constantly expanding and growing and becoming better by taking sound advice from many directions. It is strong because it has many deeply fortified roots. We get scared when we act outside of our biological community. And we say, oh, we got to remember, blood is thicker than water. But God has a design that's bigger than that. He wants us to have more roots than that. 
A godly family makes godly people. 2 Timothy 1 through 5, 1 5 says, this is the Apostle Paul talking to his, his student, Timothy. And he says, I am reminded of your sincere faith, which first dwelt in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice, and I am convinced of this in you as well. And so I pray that that flame may be fanned. Timothy learned his faith from where? His mother and his grandmother. He didn't learn it from the teachings that were going around. Those teachings confirmed his faith. But he learned it from his family. Timothy then was charged with taking what he had been taught and then teaching it. And these writings that he's supposed to teach, they become the basis for pastorship within the church. So Paul came along and he found Timothy, who was a man of faith, who had been taught a faith by his mother and his grandmother. And Paul charged this man, who had been taught a familial faith, to teach the other pastors. It's the faith of his family that's being taught. Those instructions are instructions for righteousness within the church. You cannot, under, you cannot oversell the importance of teaching Christ and God and the scriptures within your family. You are the vehicle by which your children will become great teachers of God. How many of us have even thought to want that for our kids? Timothy was able to teach these things because Lois and Eunice took seriously the teaching of the word as outlined in Deuteronomy. They taught him to be righteous, and now he was going to teach others. A godly family has the power to affect things beyond the now. A godly family has the ability to reach into the future and bestow blessings upon the next generation of God's people. And this is just a few things, guys. This is a few things that makes a godly family unique, that gives a godly family a purpose beyond the purpose that's in the world. It's not a concise list, but it's a great starting point. To learn more, please see your Bibles. Um, to review, a godly family makes godly people. A godly family is larger than just one small community. It's larger than just the bio family. A godly family is shepherded well. A godly family has godly teaching. A godly family has clear methods, identity, and roles, and a godly family is called for a purpose. So now what we're going to do is we're going to take time to talk with each other about what was just talked about, and we're going to break up into cell groups, and we're going to discuss this teaching. Now is the time to ask questions. So I have a few questions for you to get the, 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 the ball rolling on that discussion. So number one, why has family been important in shaping your identity? Why has family been important in shaping your identity? Number two, what has your family built its identity around? Is it fishing? That's, people do that. People build their families around NASCAR. Is it fishing? Is it camping? Is it school? Is it money? Is it race? You know, is it your culture? I am a Filipino, and I can tell you, not being racist, that in my culture, there are many people who build their families around being Filipino. I'm going to tell you, a godly family may involve being Filipino, but it's not built around being Filipino. I'm thinking about the Kardashians <laughs> and what they build their family around. Um, will any of these things that you build your family around, as you answer that question for yourselves, what do you build your family around? Will any of these things that you build your family around, will they matter? Will they matter to your grandchildren? When we look at World War II, 
and we look at what was going on um, during the German occupation, and we look at uh, how some people fought back against the Nazi incursion, and specifically in regard to like what they did with the Jewish people, whether they were for or against them. Do you think people cared what what radio program they listened to? Do you think people cared what clothing they wore? No, they, they cared about the big picture. Will, you, will your kids care about the things that you're focusing on? Will your, will your grandchildren care about the things that you're focusing on? Number three, when you stand before God, what will God say that your family was about? Will God say that your family was about him? Or will he say that your family was about an idol? You know, an idol is anything, anything, even a person, even an idea. An idol is anything that replaces God. Will God say that your family worships a false idol? Number four, are you brave enough to want your family to mean something on an infinite level? Because it requires bravery. It requires us to be uncomfortable. If you're confused about something in this sermon, you can obviously talk to any of the pastors. You can rewatch the sermon if you want to. It's on Facebook, available and free. Um, next week, if you can't be here for some reason or you want to see any of the sermons, you can get on Facebook. Just find our Facebook page, and we are live every Sunday where you can watch again. Next week, after going through all of this, talking about deconstructing the different parts of the family and how we should interact and, and what the characteristics of a godly family are, next week we are going to try to do the impossible, and that is we are going to tackle the subject of how it is that we take our families from point A to point B to being the godly family that we want. But you've got to imagine that you can have it. So... Go discuss.